Amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, several months ago when I taught, uh, taught obviously Matthew chapter 1. And, uh, you know, the, there's tapes on uh, YouTube and, and on the church website. But uh, just to summarize, kind of give us the context before we get into chapter 2 tonight. Um, we did a little preview to Matthew, the book, and then um, went verse by verse through it. Um, Matthew has been called the bridge builder between the Old Testament and the New Testament um, because it's the first book of the New Testament and because it was written to the Jewish people and because the author Matthew is constantly quoting Old Testament verses, prophecies, um, thus connecting the Old Testament prophecies with the New Testament fulfillments that are found in Jesus Christ. And uh, the main point of Matthew is that Jesus is, is the King of the Jews, their Messiah. And we find in Matthew, the book of Matthew, the King revealing his kingdom. And we talked last time that the Jewish people were expecting an outward political takeover, if you will. The Messiah is here, we're going to take over the world. And that will happen at his second coming. But at the first coming, he came to establish a different kingdom, uh, a heavenly kingdom inward spiritual kingdom. And in order to be a part of Jesus, well, let me read this verse first, Matthew, I mean, Luke 17, this is kind of where Jesus addressed that. Verse 20 and 21, it says, Now when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, Hey, see here, or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. And, and, that said, in order to be a part of the spiritual kingdom, um, kind of an unseen kingdom, you have to become a spiritual being. But the problem is most of us aren't spiritual beings. We've been separated from God uh, spiritually by our sin. And so God, you, you, can't, you can't become a spiritual being through religious effort or being good or something like that. God has to do it for you. We said this, through being born again, through that miracle. So we repent and believe in the gospel and and then you become a spiritual being. God comes to live within you. And you're a part of God's spiritual kingdom. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the kingdom of God is wherever God is king. And at this time on this planet, that only exists in the hearts of born-again believers in Jesus Christ. But it's an awesome place. And, 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 and Matthew is a perfect example. The author uh, this is a perfect example of a citizen he, of the kingdom of, of God. He, um, he, was a, he, he was a tax collector. And the Jews considered them traitors, you know, and they were. But in responding to the call of Jesus Christ, he was changed. And he became a loving, devoted follower who dwelt uh, in harmony with other disciples who would have been considered his enemies before Jesus. And that's just... Uh, an example of the, basically the transforming effect of Jesus on people's lives, and it's a defining characteristic of Jesus' kingdom. Now, to become king, you've got to prove your claim, and Matthew sets out to do that, verse 1 of chapter 1, by um, listing Jesus' genealogy and showing that he is a descendant of King David and of Abraham because God had made covenant promises with those guys. And indeed, Jesus fulfilled those covenant promises uh, in his lifetime. But even better than that, he came and he established the new covenant of grace, which we live in. 
Um, and let me tell you, when he, when, I mean, in putting uh, his genealogy on display, he was, you know, we're getting the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, wicked people. Good, you know, some good people and everything. But, you know, and Jesus didn't hide any of his dirty laundry because he came to identify us with us, with us sinners and save us from our sin. And so, also... Uh, in Matthew, we have a record of Jesus' birth from the perspective of the last guy in that genealogy, Joseph, um, who was Jesus' stepfather on earth. And Joseph, um, we find him, he's a, he's a just man, a good man who, when, when it starts, I mean, he's like, he doesn't know what to do because his betrothed love has come up pregnant out of wedlock and but then an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream for the first five times we'll see here. And uh, Joseph in faith will take action on what the Lord says to him. And, and, and so uh, Jesus is born, which brings us to chapter two. Now, it's one thing to claim that you have a right to the throne. But if no one recognizes your claim, you're not going to be ruling anybody. And so tonight in chapter two, we see People coming to recognize Jesus as the king of the Jews, but it wasn't the Jews. And so in the, in the words of one of my favorite Bible teachers, or what he likes to say uh, regarding chapter 2 of Matthew, here comes the wise guys. So let's start reading in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, this is very interesting. Um, you know, as we really look at the word, which we're going to talk about a lot tonight, but really examine the word and, and look at things around and in and, and, and the world around. I mean, like Christmas traditions. And we've strayed on our Christmas traditions in regards to the word of God. We just see right here in this verse. Um, Think of that uh, song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, a very popular Christmas carol. Well, right now we see these guys aren't kings. Uh, the Greek word for them is magos, which we get our word magician. Um, so these are mystical kind of guys. Uh, the historian uh, Herodotus said there are priests from the Persian courts, which was previously Babylon, but they were ancient astronomers, and they and they interpreted dreams. They did. Now there was one of their members, 500 years previously, who had written of one like the Son of Man, who would come to the Ancient of Days, and who would someday reign and rule on the earth, and he was speaking of Jesus. And that wise man was the prophet Daniel, who had risen, uh, had uh, gone in the, uh, um, with the exiles into Babylon and um, had been set aside into the court, the, the court with these wise men. And he had risen up to the top guy and had apparently, um, you know, put together other prophecies. And, but these guys were familiar with him because he, he was well known for 500 years in their ranks. And they probably were familiar with this. And, and uh, this actual prophecy of Daniel as well. But the second thing, number one, there weren't kings. Number two, it doesn't say there were just three of them. 
We probably got that from the idea from the fact that there were three gifts mentioned. You know, we'll talk about those gold, frankincense and myrrh. But three lonely pilgrims coming into the big city of Jerusalem probably wouldn't have caused much of a stir. You know, now their message or their urgency in finding this new king might have stirred. But I mean, the whole of Jerusalem was troubled. But we'll find out why that may have happened here in just a moment. And so, you know, we might need to change some of our titles and things like that, reconsider some things. We'll talk about that a little more as we go along. But, you know, maybe it should be we three kings of Orient aren't, you know, because they weren't kings and there, were, there probably weren't three of them. And this is this is true. They probably didn't show up at Jesus birth. We see him showing up in in all our traditions right there with the shepherds in the manger scene. Probably didn't happen. Probably a couple of years later is when they showed up. And, and we'll see that. There was another Babylonian prophet, a man named Balaam. You know, the guy that the Lord let a don open the mouth of a donkey to be able to speak to because he was being a donkey. But he was actually a prophet who heard from God and, and you know, would speak on God's behalf. But the problem with that, Balaam was that he was also a total contradiction and an enigma, uh, to put it nicely. Carnal, earthly focus. Greedy. He's known for his greed. Nevertheless, Balaam had a prophecy about Jesus as well. In uh, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, he foresaw the coming Messiah and a star, which is recorded here. I see him, meaning the Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And, of course, the star is the Messiah. But the image of the star is used and, and possibly foreshadowing this star. We don't know. You know, many have speculated about this star. I mean, and they're very interesting. I mean, read them. But, you know, there's speculation. The one thing we do know is that the wise men had no doubt this was the sign of the birth of the king of the Jews. And that it was confirmed by the fact that it would lead them directly to it. To Jesus's doorstep. Verse three. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I bet they were. This guy, Herod, he was a terror. He was a tyrant. Uh, Pastor Chuck called him little monster. He was about four feet four. And he was known for as the great because he, he did a lot of great. He he built the temple that was there at that point in Israel when Jesus was there, which was magnificent. He, uh, he built Masada. He built some other fortresses. But, you know, he was doing stuff like that. But Rome had put him in place as king, probably because of his ruthlessness. And he was a real operator, political operator. And, and he, he was very political and paranoid about people plotting against him all the time. Um, History tells us that he uh, suspected his wife and three of his sons of plotting against him, and he had them executed. Then the next day he felt bad about and built a monument to him. But uh, Caesar said it was safer to be Herod's pig than a family. You know, Israel, they don't eat pigs, and so it was safer to be his pig than a family member because he was so ruthless. But they, you know, they liked him being there. He, he would later turn over his kingdom to four guys. Uh, it would be turned over to four guys at his death. But these, it's, it's with this paranoid guy that the 
wise men come asking, where is he born king of the Jews? <laughs> and so Herod, paranoid Herod, was very troubled. And everybody else was as well, I'm sure so. When he, verse 4, when he gathered all the chief priests and the scribes and the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And the word inquired there in the Greek is demanded. You know, the little tyrant wants some answers now. Where is he? And so they said to him, the chief priests and the scribes, in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Matthew quotes Micah chapter 5, verse 2 here, speaking of Jesus. And they know where, that's interesting, they know where he's going to be born, in Bethlehem. Which, um, Bethlehem is one of the most famous cities in the world. But, uh, as far as the tourism industry has said, it's, it's kind of one of the biggest disappointments out there, they say. It's kind of just a little hole in the wall. And we go, well, what's so special about it? Hey, we know one thing. Jesus was there. Hey, and let me say this to you. We're, we're kind of like Bethlehem, aren't we? You know, not much to us. At least that's how I feel. Yeah. But at the same time, people look at us and they go, you know, there's something about you. We know it's not us, don't we? Yes. Jesus is there. He dwells in us. And I, I just think that's so cool to think of it in that way. You know, Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says, speaks of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, but again, note the chief priests and scribes know exactly where the Messiah would be born. And yet they don't even make the effort to go over there and check it out. You know, and, and so, so you just have to say, what's up with that? And I say, you can know the word of God, but not know the God of the word. Matter of fact, you aren't even interested in getting to know him. You're into studying and if, if knowing the God of the Word is not the goal of your study of the Word of God, then I've got to tell you right now, your scholarship basically is worthless. Jesus said that. John 5, 39, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Knowing God, knowing Jesus, is what matters, not just knowing the Word. And let me tell you something. Here at Calvary Chapel, man, we put knowing the word up there but if you're just into knowing the word for knowing the word not a great thing you know God tells us in Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 23 and 24 that there is only one thing that a person should boast about he says let not the wise man glory in his wisdom let not the mighty man glory in his might nor let the rich man glory in his riches but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. And, and we get to know him. We get to that place through his word. That's how he reveals himself to us. Paul said in Philippians 3, the goal of his life, forget everything else. I want to know Jesus. And that's how we should be. The new covenant tells us that in God's kingdom, we'll all know him from the least to the greatest. And Jesus says, if we don't know God, 
we won't be saved. In Matthew 7, 23, remember what he said? And I will say from them, to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And these were people who had been doing stuff, apparently. Therefore, we study the word to know the Lord. And, and, the, and, and regarding the Bible, the blessing is in the doing, not just the knowing. And we got to be careful not to come to church, hear a good message, and, and think that I'm right just for hearing it. You know, James said, hey, what? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And we do that a lot. You know, we get, you know, we just, and we don't do it at all. We got to do the word because knowledge puffs up. That's what 1 Corinthians 8 tells us. And if we seek, if we study the Bible without seeking the Lord, seeking to know him, we become proud. But this is the cool thing. If you seek to know the Lord through the study of his word, God himself will begin to speak to us through it. That's what I used to tell my little third through fifth graders. I, you know, in teaching them, I, we, we bought them these Bibles and, and we made sure every kid, and he said, okay, open up and read along with me because here's the deal. If you ask God and you seek to know, God will start to speak to you through his word. And he does. It's incredible. And the spirit through the word will convict us of sin, of our sin, of the righteousness of Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, and of the coming judgment. And we become humbled. We're not proud. We're honest. We realize we're sinners. We repent, believe, and are born again and filled with God's spirit and his love. And we won't be proud. No, we'll be loving. We'll seek to edify others. There are four questions that are important uh, to studying a passage of the Word. Uh, a couple of guys taught this to me, and it has meant so much to me um, in my years of studying the Word. The first question that you want to ask yourself when you come to a passage of Scripture is, what is the context? You know, Who's writing? Where are they writing from? When were they writing? What's the situation? Why? Try and figure those things out. It's very important. And a lot of times, that's where the meaning is found, is in the context. And there are a lot of cults, a lot of bogus teachers who take one passage and, and they use it out of context to support some really bogus things. And so it's important for us to get that context for so we know What's going on here? Why are we coming? We'll understand where they're coming from. The next thing is just what does it say? What's the basic meaning? You know, just the plain meaning. And then what does he mean? What's, his, what's the point of what's being written there? That is, you know, that is important to get to that place. But I tell you what, it's the place a lot of people stop and kind of divide up over the meaning of, of a scripture. Churches will split over the meaning of passages. What's it mean? Well, it means this. No, it means this. But we're not going to, you know, new denominations formed. And it's important to push through to the last question. This is, it is so, it's the most important thing. How does it apply to my life? Taking that approach kind of knocks us off our high, our high. When we get into the Bible and start examining our life according to Scripture, <laughs> And honestly examine ourselves, it humbles us. 
You know, we're not all cocky and everything. It, it kind of, that pride we had and our understanding of Scripture all of a sudden doesn't matter because we aren't doing it. Or we see ourselves in light of what we know, hey, we, we fall short. So, you know, the important thing is ask God to show you how a passage applies to your life, and He will. Some of the important things about studying it. Come to the Word prayerfully. I mean, don't come just trying to figure out yourself. I mean, there are times I've come to the Word, and I'm getting into it, and I'm not figuring out anything, and I go, oh, I didn't bring God in on this. And I pray, and all of a sudden the Lord just opens up the Scripture, and He will do that for you. Prayerfully, without an agenda, with no preconceived notions about what it says, and without a point to prove. If you just come and let the Bible speak for itself, the Holy Spirit will teach you. And in fact, 1 John 2.27 says, The anointing which you have received from Him, the Holy Spirit, basically that's who that is, abides in you, and you do not need, listen to this, anyone to teach you. But as the same anointing the Holy Spirit teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. And so you read that passage and you go, okay, we have no need of anyone to teach us. What are you doing up there, Steve? Why are you teaching? And uh, the, the short answer is, it's for your flesh's benefit. I am not your teacher. I'm just basically spouting out off some, some truth, hopefully. And from within you, your true teacher is teaching you. You hear that? What he just said, that's the truth. You see, and the Spirit is our teacher. He's the one who teaches us. Now, what he teaches you won't contradict any of the scripture. Now, there's a lot of checks and balances here. But he's our teacher. And your brother, and he'll be teaching your brothers and sisters in Christ the same thing. And, and, and the incredible thing is when there are things that as you get into the word and you know the word, and then somebody says something that's not true, it's like there's this the spirit within you. I mean, I've Karen and I have been in church in places, and it's like the hair, somebody will say, and the hair will go up on my back because I know that's wrong. You know, and, and Jesus said this. He told us, look, if you abide in my word, you are my disciple indeed. And you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Yeah. Now, the word disciple there is a cool word. It means learner. Jesus says, hey, if you are hanging out continuously in my word, you're going to be learning directly from me. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to show you the truth. Don't you want to know the truth? Yes. I mean, everybody's got an opinion. So with the Internet, it's like flood, avalanche of opinions. How do I sort through it? Jesus said, hang out in my word. You'll know the truth. And it'll set you free. Well, free from what? Whatever you're being controlled by and bondage to. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever's on you. God's word helps us in these situations. Now, many, like these Jewish scholars, are content just to know and deceive themselves like James said. We got to press through, guys. We got to apply the word to our lives. We got to know God. We got to be doers of the word. And we must let the word speak to us and guide us like the wise men and come and worship Jesus. Verse 7, Matthew chapter 2. Then Herod when he secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Probably a couple of years prior, as we'll see. But why did he call them in secret? It's a good question. 
Don't totally know. Maybe he didn't want the people to follow him to this new king. Whatever the reason, it's obvious that paranoid Herod is plotting something again. Verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search, and carefully for the young child. And when you found him, bring him back to me that I may come and worship him also. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, he wants to know where the new king is so he can go and kill him. Eliminate the competition. Verse 9. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. Till it came and stood over where the young child was. A miracle. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It was a miracle. <laughs> and the wise men knew it. And they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Because these guys knew the stars. I mean, they spent their whole life studying the stars. And they knew it. And this was different. This was something special. This was a miracle from God. And God was leading them to Jesus. Let me tell you something. Like these wise men, God also leads us to Jesus through what we know. Through supernaturally natural ways, it's been said. Through the lives we are living. Through the things we do. And so often through the people we know. <laughs> we will understand something special is going on here. We might not see it at the time, but when we look, look back, we realize God, through his Holy Spirit, was leading us to him through that. And that's exactly what happened to me. When I, when I look back at my salvation, the path I got there was something special. I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't even know what was going on. And, and he did it through the people I knew. Like I, I've mentioned before, a pro quarterback who had a very public conversion experience, and I had known him before and after. And I saw, there's something different about that guy. I played basketball with him up at the local gym in the offseason, and, you know, I didn't know him from other than the guy he played basketball with, or the girl who cut my hair. When I think about that, she was different than me. I wasn't born again. She was. She wasn't into the world. She was more interested in God that's all she wanted to talk about. She was all invi always inviting me to this bi big Bible study. I think the same one the pro quarterback was going to. But there was a peace about her. There was something about her. And because of what I saw in them, when I got to the place in my life where I had no peace, I'd done so many things I was ashamed of. And I couldn't shake the guilt feeling that I always felt. And I was looking for peace. I just kind of knew just from having seen them, I kind of knew where I needed to go looking. You know what I mean? There was also my friend Bill. Big, as tall as I am, that's as short as he was. That guy loved me. In a big way. That guy's fat. I still see it, man. Smiling. Just a happy guy. He was a born-again Christian. There was something special about it. And he invited me to church during that time when I was so desperate and, and just feeling so down and everything. And I went. Karen and I went. And the pastor was teaching on, well, a tough subject, hell. And who are the people who are going there? And, but I stuck around and the last day I was there, I realized, you know what? I'm one of them people going to hell. And it was just, it shook me. I became utterly desperate and in utter despair and I was crying out to God. 
I remember at the stoplight crying out to God to save me. I didn't I didn't know what to do. And then I remember the next week just sensing I couldn't explain at the time. I just said to Karen, I just knew we need to go to that church that we went to one time before. Remember, and we started going there. An older couple that we knew named Chaparro. They were some of those other people that had a good feeling about them. They had invited us to come there. It was just, I don't know, it just felt good to be with them. And, and everybody else was kind of the same way towards us. And what the pastor was saying was just keeping. And then he said the most profound thing to a person who had come to know, I'm a sinner. I deserve to die and go to hell. I admit it, God. He said, God loves you. <laughs> Period. I mean, it was like, what? It blew me away. I sensed like God was speaking to me himself. And you know what? He was. And, and I realized that he had been speaking to me the whole time through all those people. And I didn't even know it. And he was leading me to himself, to his son. He was saying he loved me in spite of the fact that I was a sinner who deserved to die and go to hell. And you know what I did? I bowed down like those wise guys are going to do. And I worshiped him. And not long after that, I repented and believed and was born again into the family of God. And praise the Lord, guys. It's clear now as I look back that it was God through his spirit who was guiding me to that place. Through the quarterback, through the girl who cut my hair, through my buddy Bill, through the chaperones, through a couple of pastors who were obedient to teach the truth of the word, especially that guy preaching on hell. He told us he didn't want to preach on it. And for me, it was something special. Like that star. For me, it was no less miraculous than that star. That God used to guide the wise men. We can be stars as well. You and me, us born again believers. Not like Hollywood or like sports stars. You know, that's kind of a self-focused thing. All the attention's on them. And they flame out. And they're gone. No. It's like the stars that, well, the stars of the heaven, like Daniel mentions in, his, in, in chapter 12, verse 3 of his, of his prophecy. Those who are wise, wise men and women, shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn away to, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. Man, if you, if you just shine for Jesus and people... People come to him, man, you'll shine like a star. You won't burn out forever in the Lord's presence. Just be faithful. Just be faithful to what God calls you. And you never know. Hey, none of those people that I just mentioned, except for the two pastors, none of them. I never went up to them and said, hey, man, you know, you guys did that. I wish I could. But they, they didn't know that God had used them in my life. And you know what? It doesn't matter. Because... It's part of their treasure. It's part of their treasure they're storing up in heaven. Hey, be faithful. This is what I'm just going to encourage you guys. Be faithful to what God leads you to do. To love everybody. To pray for everybody. To share the gospel. The truth of the word. To abide in Christ and follow his leading. And it may not seem like you're accomplishing anything, but you are. You just don't know it. God will use your faithfulness in ways you may not see this side of eternity. Praise the Lord. 
But you will find someday in heaven that God used you as a star in somebody else's life. That's what I want to do. Amen? That's what I want so much. Verse 11, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child and his mo- and with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. That's what I did too. When I finally saw Jesus, when I knew that he was alive, that he was real, I experienced him. He was truly and literally there and present. That he is who he says he is, that he is the truth and all others are liars and he loves me and died for me. Hey, I fell down and worshipped him like the, the wise men. It changed everything about my life, my priorities, my purpose, my mind, my motivations, my focus. And and the disciples, think about Jesus' disciples. When they saw the risen Lord, what happened to them? Turned cowards into what? Martyrs who forsook everything. I mean, this time, everything, (laughs) you know, and they didn't care about this world anymore. All because they saw Jesus alive. And the thing is, have you seen Jesus alive? That's what that's what we need to ask people. And that's what we need to ask ourselves today. Man, you're alive, Jesus. Show me. Encounter the Lord. Also notice in verse 11, Mary and the young child are living in a house at this point, not a stable. And Jesus is referred to as a young child, not an infant. Again, sometimes probably past. And so 11 there, uh, second part of it. And when they had opened their treasures, the wise men, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are some costly gifts that they brought to him. And you know what David said of giving gifts to God? In 2 Samuel 24, 24, when Arauna offered to give his threshing floor to King David so David could make a sacrifice to the Lord, David declined his offer and said he would not make offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. True worship always costs you something. It may not be money, or it may. Might be your time. Might be physical effort, material possessions, or dignity and pride. Just think about these wise guys in their wise attire in in this little house, bowing down on their faces, on their knees, before a toddler. Humbling, huh? Same thing might happen to you. If you decide to worship Jesus and you you begin to, you know, you shine for Jesus and say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a born again believer. There are people that you may want to respect you. You may desire, you know, their friendship or favor and they may look down on you and despise you. But let me tell you guys, it's worth. It's a worthy sacrifice. It's worth it. Um. The significance of the gifts aren't just how expensive they were. God and his sovereignty, I believe, inspired the wise men to give these particular gifts and use them to point to Jesus. How so? Number one, they gave gold. That's something you give a king. They gave incense. What's that? Something you give a priest. But then they gave myrrh. Myrrh is an embalming fluid. What is that saying? We remember Jesus is a suffering prophet. He was the baby who was born to die for the sins of the world. And it's so apropos and paints an incredible picture of Jesus on this earth. 
And, it, and it's good to look at the steps the wise men have taken to get there. First of all, they took a pilgrimage from their country to come and find the king. Then when they found him, what did they do? They prostrated, prostrated themselves down before the king, humbled themselves. And finally, they presented gifts. And that's kind of how it is with us, isn't it? When the, when the Lord stirs up a hunger in our heart, we, we seek him out. We seek him. He's calling us. We're hearing the call. When we get to him and finally experience him, man, we fall on our faces. And we love him and we worship him. And then finally we present ourselves as gifts to him, living sacrifices. But we also see in this chapter so far three different responses to Jesus. The little baby at this point. Number one, we see hostility. You know, there are those in this world that hate Jesus and they're going to attack and do everything they can do. To bust him up and bring him down. But then, this is the one that's kind of the saddest one, indifference. There are people who knew where the king was going to be born, and they didn't care. You know? The last one is worship. And of course, to use that phrase everybody has, wise men are those who worship him. So true. Verse 12. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. A lot of significant dreams, angelic appearances going on right now in this situation. And the Lord protects Jesus by sending the wise men home another way. So they don't have to go back where Herod is. And, but I like to think of this, that another way like this as well. They went home different. They were changed. They had experienced Jesus and they were another way now. And that always happens. When you come in and you get into worship and you experience the Lord, you're changed. We're different, aren't we? Praise the Lord. We leave that place of worship another way different than when we arrived. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, here we go. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, <laughs> saying, Arise. Take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Joseph, here he is again, encountering an angel of the Lord in another dream. I like it. Part of Joseph's ministry, think about it, was sleeping. Isn't that cool? I like that. That's where all his encounters with God have been, seemed to have been happening, right? Verse 14, when he, then when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Yeah, and this is a spiritually sensitive guy, a man of faith. And when he hears from the Lord, he acts on it. I mean, in the middle of the night, he was a doer of the word. Faith is something you act upon. If you believe something enough, you're going to act upon it. And he demonstrated his faith through his actions, getting out of town Getting up in the middle of the night, getting out of town and on down to Egypt and protecting Jesus from Herod's wrath. Now, from uh, Luke chapter 2, Tyler's talked about this a little. We know when Joseph and Mary went to present the baby Jesus at the temple that they presented gifts that poor people. So we know they were poor. And so the question is, how in the world did they finance that trip? <laughs> you know, down there and stay in Egypt so long. Well, that's how God works. He had provided by bringing some wise men from the east with some expensive gifts. Probably were able to finance it just before they were to leave. And here's the deal. If God calls you to something, 
If he calls you to do something for him, go somewhere, whatever, get into something that is going to cost it. He's going to give you what you need to go there and get it done. There's an old saying around Calvary Chapel where God guides, he provides. And he does. I've seen it over and over in my own life. Often right at the last minute. And if God is not providing, you know what? I mean, it's fair to question, is he calling me? You know? Or maybe God's not providing because, you know, he is calling you, but he wants you to wait on him. You know? Or sometimes we step out in faith and God provides in that moment. Boom. The main thing is to pray, to seek the Lord's guidance. As Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. Pray till either God answers or you have peace about waiting on whatever he says. But where God guides, he provides. That's what it says. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of the things will be added to you as well. And that is so true, guys. He doesn't want you worrying about money. He wants you worrying about worshiping him and loving other people and sharing the gospel with them. Verse 15. And Joseph and Jesus and Mary were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Hosea 11.1, 1, which is the verse quoted here, is about God delivering Israel out of Egypt. But Matthew shows it is also a prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling. Egypt, as we know from our study through Exodus, is what? A type of the world. You know? And here's the deal. Jesus... Going with his family to Egypt truly paints a picture of his mission. When he came to this world and became flesh and dwelt among us. In order for God to call him out of Egypt, also known as the world, Jesus had to be in Egypt, also known as the world. And Jesus ventured to Egypt, also known as the world, that he might deliver us from Egypt, also known as the world. See the picture? Which brings us to the other side of Christmas. One of the most horrifying events in the Bible. The massacre of the innocents. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. That's where we get the two years. Possibly Jesus was two at this point, or near there. Two years and under. This is almost too awful to think about. I mean, we don't really think about it, do we? It's like soldiers and policemen and law enforcement searching every home in our community, forcing their way in, looking for little boys two years and under. And when they find them, killing them. You know, we got three little boys who fit that description in our church including my grandson, Wesley. I can't even imagine that. What these people experienced. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, 
a voice was heard in Rama, lamentation, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew here cites Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, as prophetic of this horrible incident. And it, picture, it portrays utter grief, which is overwhelming and uncomprehendable. And what evil. Guys, this is so characteristic of Satan at work. You know, he's the thief who seeks to steal, to kill, to destroy. And he hates us especially because we follow Jesus. He wants to steal your salvation, to kill you, to send you to hell, to destroy you, to devastate you with as much force as possible. Think about what he did to Job when God allowed him. You know, to put his hands on Job's life. I mean, he just wiped everything out. All his possessions, all his family, everything. He hates us. <sighs> we have had a massacre of innocents over the last 50 years in our country. Over 60 million babies have been aborted. <laughs> Look. Abortion had been legal when I was born in 1960. I might not be standing up here, guys. A devastating attack of Satan on the unborn children of our country. And supporters will say, you know, they try to act like it's nothing, just the removal of an embryo mass growing inside a woman. You know, and women, women have to have this right so they can live their lives they want and compete in the world around them and save their kids from maybe poverty or, or hardship. It's no big deal. It's not a baby. It's, a, it's fetal tissue. Nobody should be weeping. But when it happens, when a woman experiences the aborting of her baby that was alive within her that God had created and was forming after it's over, and a woman realizes what she's done, let me tell you something, guys. Weeping and wailing. Hard to recover. Almost impossible. Utter devastation. Look, before I was a Christian, right after I got out of college, before I met my beautiful wife, who I love, um, I dated a girl for a short time. And she... Well, she had a lot going for her. She was beautiful. She was a very nice person, smart, disciplined, successful professionally. But, but this young girl was an alcoholic in her early 20s. And it didn't make sense. But then one time, she got so drunk that she was throwing up. And she started just weeping uncontrollably, like described here in Rama in Bethlehem. And so I was, what's wrong? And you know what she said? I killed my baby. And then she told me how in college she had gotten pregnant with her boyfriend. And they had chosen to have an abortion. And guys, it had wrecked her life. And, and she was unconsolable. You could not make her feel better. She was a sad person. Abortion, like all sin, 
like all rebellion against God, brings utter devastation to your soul. But with the gospel, there's always good news, guys. Hey, man, I'm not going to tell you something that's just horrifying without telling you, hey, you got to hear the good news. If you are someone who has had an abortion or either father or mother, and you're experiencing that uncontrollable grief over what you chose to do, or if you're a doctor or a nurse who is involved in aborting babies, there is hope for you. First of all, that baby's with the Lord. Hey, that child is with the Lord. Second of all, let me tell you something right now. Jesus shed his blood to gain forgiveness for you for what you have done. All sinners. You must in faith confess your sin and accept that forgiveness. And then here's the deal. Forgive yourself. Please do not receive the, I mean, refuse the forgiveness and comfort of the Lord. Because here's the deal. We're all sinners who deserve to die and go to hell. Every single one of them. Without that acknowledgement, I'm telling you guys, there could be no true conversion. Because if you don't need to be saved, then why did Jesus die? Why do I need a Savior? Accept the Lord's total forgiveness through what Jesus did and be comforted. Because here's the deal. God loves you. And He desires to have fellowship with you. He wants to, he wants to set you free from this great, overwhelming heavy laden burden of sin. In this passage, we also see the other side of Christmas. As John Corson says, no longer was it O little town of Bethlehem, it was O little town of Bedlam. It was crazy there. Jesus arrived and Satan attacked and death and devastation followed. Don't let anyone tell you different. It's not always a bed of roses. Let me tell you, hey, the blessings are incredible. You know, it's a good life walking. But our enemy, Satan, hates us for making that choice. And he will bring death and devastation to our lives because of it. He will seek to turn our friends and family against us. And he will seek to turn this world and its system against us. He's our enemy. But Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. But what? Be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome the world. Even though there will be struggle, possibly great devastating struggle, because we decided to follow Jesus, let me tell you something, it will be worth it. Totally worth it. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. And the reason being, he was prophesying to the nation of Israel while they were being judged. And they were being sent into exile in Babylon because of their idolatry. And it was just a sad time. I mean, just an utterly terrible time for the nation Israel. But Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33 are known as a passage of hope. In this very chapter, the new covenant is where it's recorded. It's where the new covenant is recorded. Jeremiah 31. The, uh, the new covenant of grace that we live in. And, but earlier in that same chapter, in verse 15, the Lord spoke of a tragedy in Bethlehem and Ramah, which Matthew quotes in Matthew chapter 2 as prophetic of the mass, this massacre of the innocents. Ramah was a little town five miles from Bethlehem. And it was the staging location, Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 3 tells us, for the exiles 
about to be moved out over into Babylon. Think there wasn't a bunch of weeping and wailing going on there? I mean, they're going into slavery. They're going into bondage. And that's what verse 15 describes in Jeremiah chapter 31. But in verse 16, dig this. The Lord says, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Stop crying. There's hope. You will return. You have a future. Hey, when we face tribulation as believers in Jesus Christ, the Lord says to us, don't cry. Why? Because the blessings that will come are better. We're saved from hell, guys. <laughs> We're in God's family. That would be enough, wouldn't it? But he uses everything good or bad to make us like Jesus. <laughs> he provides everything we need. He protects us. He fills us with the Spirit and His love and enables, enables us to love every person, no matter how they treat us. And we have everything. We have all blessings in Christ Jesus forever. Man, you can't beat that. And, and it can get rough here. Guys, it can get rough. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, listen to what he says. This light affliction. He calls it all a light affliction. And hey, if anybody was persecuted, it was Paul. I mean, just two places in Scripture, he lists all the things he went through. But he says it's a light affliction, which is but for a moment. This lifetime is only for a moment, guys. I'm getting closer. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, we all are. My two, my two, uh, my two sports, uh, two of my favorite sport athletes uh, passed within the last year. <laughs> Start thinking about when I was a kid, they were my hero. Hank Aaron, Bill Russell, they both just passed. Everything. Uh-oh. It's getting close. You know? But who cares? It's a moment. What happens after this life is what matters. We've got to make that be the most important thing. And live for it. It's but for a moment. And it is working in us. The tribulation we're going through is working us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Praise the Lord. So we don't weep. The blessings of Christ in Christ Jesus are so much greater and better than the tribulation we face. Verse 19. And when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream. <laughs> To Joseph and Egypt, <laughs> snoozing for the Lord. Don't you love it? Man, you guys aren't getting fired up about this. I mean, I really am attracted to that ministry. <laughs> you know, Karen will say amen. <laughs> hey, when, hey, and whenever they were at a crossroads in their future, Mary would just simply say, honey, just go to sleep. Just, just sleep on it, you know. Verse 20, arise, take the young child and his mother, the angel is saying to Joseph, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, 
took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. Again, we notice the faith of, Jake, of Joseph to act on the leading of the Lord. Also notice the angel doesn't tell him where to go in Israel. That's how the Lord usually works. He just usually shows us the next step. Not all the steps. We'd like to have all the steps, wouldn't we? Yes. I don't think we'd take them, though, if we knew them. The Lord says, eh, I'll just give you one at a time. Just trust me. And he expects us to take the next step in faith, not knowing where we're going. That's what Abraham did. Abraham went out, what, from Ur of the Chaldees to a land he didn't know where it was, and he went out not knowing where he was going. We need to act. We need to follow the father of faith, his example. And God expects us to take that next step, knowing that he will always showing, show us the next step after that as they come. Just be faithful to take the step he's already taken. And a lot of people won't take that step. You know, they won't do it. And so we're stuck. And hey, God, what's going on? Take the step. 22. But when he heard that Archelaus, this is Herod's son, was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. You know, outward circumstances, I'm not being like, hey, they can be rough. They can create fear in us initially. But when you don't know what to do and the situation seems dire, don't freak out. In faith, don't freak out. You know what's usually best to do? Nothing. Just wait on the Lord and pray and ask the Lord. Or in Joseph's case, hit the hay. <laughs> Get some shut-eye. Take a nap. Hey, it's a great ministry. I like it. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Like I said, the Lord shows Joseph the next step. Right on? Verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be a Nazarene. There has been a lot of speculation about this verse because there is not, not an actual Old Testament verse that says he shall be called a Nazarene. Some see it as a vague reference to this in Isaiah 11, verse 1, which reads, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Of course, it's a, Isaiah 11, 1 is a messianic passage, and Jesse, his hometown was Bethlehem. And then uh, the Greek word there for branch is Nesser. Probably didn't pronounce that correctly. But in the Hebrew, apparently, it sounds much like Nazarite. But, but really, it's just speculation. Nobody. What we do know is that Jesus, the Messiah, his stepfather being directed by an angel in the dream, moves from one hole in the wall city to another. <laughs> John 1, Nathaniel, when he heard where Jesus was from, you remember what Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> David Guzik comments, growing up in Nazareth, Jesus would, ma would mature in boyhood and then in his young adulthood. He would fulfill the responsibilities expected of an eldest son. And then at some time, Joseph disappeared from the scene and Jesus became the man of the family. He worked his trade, supported his family, loved his God, proved himself utterly faithful in a thousand small, th a thousand small things before he formally entered his appointed ministry. Yet no one would be intimidated to meet a man from Nazareth. The tendency 
would be to immediately think oneself better than a person from Nazareth. And I would venture that that's just the way Jesus wanted it. Because he came to humbly identify with us lowly sinners. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of information on what happens when he gets to Nazareth until, you know, he gets to be about 30 and enters into the ministry that we know about in the Gospels. But except in Luke chapter 2, when they went up when he was 12 and his parents lost God. Remember that? That's the only time he talks about it. But we know that before we can be used by God, we must be prepared by God. And these are the years of Jesus' preparation. Remember, Moses was prepared 40 years as a prince in Egypt and 40 years as a shepherd way out in the desert or at the backside of the, of the desert. Same thing with Paul. He spent three years in the de desert and then 10 to 15 years where we didn't hear from him much until he started his great missionary journeys. And if God is going to use you, he's going to prepare you. Therefore, do not despise the days of small things. God is using them to prepare you. Be faithful, learn from them, allow them to prepare you. And Jesus was our example in this. In that he lived 30 years and submitted to his earthly parents. There is one thing we know for sure, sure that Jesus was doing during those years. And that's that he was pleasing the Father. Because God the Father himself tells us that at Jesus' baptism. Remember, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So in Matthew 2, we've seen people come and acknowledge Jesus as king. We've seen others who could care less. I hate to say it, but that usually seems to be the biggest group. And then those who oppose him violently. But God shows that he will preserve King Jesus, and Jesus' kingdom will come on the earth. And the most important thing is that we all be a part of it. Amen? In Matthew 3, we'll meet the forerunner. The prophesied herald of Jesus' coming kingdom. Malachi 3 sa says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before you. Again, fittingly, not the person you would expect. But Jesus will say of this guy, among those born of women, there's none arisen greater. I can't wait. This guy is the coolest guy. One of my favorite guys. And if the Lord wills, next time I teach, we'll, we'll learn about him. This great man.